Hey everybody, welcome to Row Hunting Resources Podcast. Alright, so it is late in the evening of April 9th, which is Easter Sunday. So, happy Easter everybody. I hope everybody had a chance to spend some quality time with friends and family. And at least for a little bit during the day, reflect on why this holiday is actually uh, celebrated. But um, for this discussion today, in this podcast today, we are back with Mike Schlegel for part two uh, of our discussion regarding the wolf reintroduction uh, plan and the management plan for Colorado. He is a former fishing game researcher, elk researcher, and regional manager, and he lived through what they had to deal with as far as wolves being reintroduced into Idaho back in the day. So he's walked this walk. He's he's been in the trenches of what Colorado is about to about to embark on. Hence the reason why I thought it would be valuable to sit down and have a discussion with him. Well, here we are again, part two. Here's the relevant point for all of you that have been saying you've been weary of these, you know, some of my three-hour, four-hour, seven-hour podcast marathons. This one is short and sweet, and it is rapid fire. Mike jumps in and takes off, and um, we cover a pile of information here. And I think the important part is for you that are listening that want to chime in on the uh, public comment for the 10J rule for the, the wolf reintroduction in Colorado. Um, as well as for those of you that want to possibly get out there and testify on the Senate hearings coming up shortly on Colorado Senate Bill 23-256 uh, regarding the 10J rule and regarding the EIS. There's a lot of information in this discussion today, and you're going to want to take notes. You want to pay attention. You want to take notes. And I just, I, 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 I'm going to, okay, I just pay attention because there's a lot of things that, that might, that, that we talk about here that has relevancy to future public comments. Um, one of the things that I, I will try to remember to do is in these introductions, I want to cover some of what we're going to cover just to give you guys an, uh, an idea of, of whether or not you want to continue to listen through and, and, and continue to, to, to go on through the podcast. I, I usually write out in the podcast description what I'm going to talk about, but I've heard that some of you may not read that. You just hear the introduction and you judge what you hear from the introduction on whether or not you're going to continue to listen. So let me go down through the list of a few of the things that we are going to tackle or at least touch on in this discussion. All right. Number one, we're going to just, and these are in order. I wrote these as a note uh, as I was going through and editing this podcast. So these things are kind of in order. Elk movement and the real, reality of the elk population in Idaho before and after uh, the wolf reintroduction or introduction. Elk depredation on agriculture uh, resources versus just wolf 
uh, depredation on livestock. This is that one is going to be massive. Pay attention to it. Federal land habitat quality, quantity, and management. This is another one that is going to be absolutely massive when we're talking about the 10J rule. Federal, uh, blah, 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 no, 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 the fallacy of the trophic cascade that the, the wolf advocates like to espouse. And this is going to be another big one. Uh, who decides what is wolf depredation when it comes down to livestock uh, being killed, depredated upon by some quote-unquote predator? Who gets to decide that? We're going to talk about the quote-unquote cost of the the Colorado wolf reintroduction. This is going to tie back into one of those previous. So we're right now, Colorado talks about livestock reimbursements. But no one's talking about the the loss in in the the reduction of money, tens of millions of dollars that is going to come in by the fact that we're going to re, have to lose and or reduce elk hunter or elk uh, license sales. But let's go back to what Mike talks about here, and let's talk about the ag reimbursement as well. That one is as far as I know has yet to come up, and that one is massive, so pay attention. Um, again, we, we, we circle back to the who is the, who is the quote-unquote wolf depredation specialist when it comes to evaluating what is wolf depredation. We're going to talk about Colorado Senate Bill 23-256 tactics. Um Mike is going to share a little bit of his opinions on the sportsman's message for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the 10J rule uh, public comment period. Um, and then, yeah, let's let's ask some questions here. Like, for instance, what I- what exactly is a self-sustaining population? Now, this just gets briefly touched on, but let me expand upon it just briefly here. The wolf advocates are talking about a self-sustaining, a viable self-sustaining population of wolves. What are they talking about? Are they talking about a sustaining, a, a self-sustaining viable population of wolves in Colorado that would be viable and self-sustaining if Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Oregon, Washington, all other wolves across the the Rocky Mountains just were were waylaid and 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 persecuted to the point where they were just decimated off the landscape again. Colorado is the 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 last bastion of hope for wolf populations and so Colorado can stand alone as the self-sustaining population or are we talking about a self-sustaining population of wolves in context with the greater nor- northern Rocky Mountain population from Idaho, Montana, Wyoming into Colorado. I'm sorry, Utah, you're going to have wolves. And then we talk about what's going on in Oregon with Washington. Like, are we talking about the North American wolf population? Or are we, or are the wolf advocates in Colorado talking about making Colorado itself the standalone last bastion of, of viable wolf population. That's massive, and that needs to be clarified. We do not dive into it in detail in this discussion, but it's something to bring up, and it's something we touch on here 
that one I think we need to touch on and talk about later on. Um, what does the 10J rule even give us? Um, there's a lot of emphasis right now talking about the 10J rule and the public comment period. I'm sorry, guys. I'm skeptical on what it actually provides us as sportsmen, but Mike and I talk about that. And then where the hell are the sportsmen groups that represent a reasonable, if not good, quote-unquote, investment for our dollars? There's a lot of us out there. There's a lot of you that are listening that want want to chime in, want to be able to participate, want to contribute to this effort, this fight, this, this resistance, whatever you want to call it. Where the hell do you spend money if you're going to spend money? And what constitutes a good investment? That's a great question. And there's a there's there's a there's just a piss pile more. All right. So I hope just just in that list, that's like in the first hour, hour and a, like hour and a half, maybe. Like, listen to this podcast. Chew on some of this stuff. Take notes. If you want, I, I'm telling you, getting mobilized to go down to the state cap Colorado State Capitol. Uh, for the hearings on Colorado Senate Bill 23-256, you guys need to show up. It needs to be cheeks and seats. It needs to be a mass of people. Go back and listen to what uh, Justin Nolan said. He extended that, golly, was it Hunters for Colorado, something like that, huntersforcolorado at gmail.com. Uh, get a hold of him so you guys can mobilize and get down to the state capitol uh, as these hearings start coming up for the 10J bill and the the EIS because I think those are going to be vitally important. Um, but secondarily, if you're passionate about this, if you love Colorado, if you like Colorado elk hunting, if you want to see Colorado elk hunting continue, these discussions that we've been having over these past, I don't know how many weeks, are important. If nothing else, please share this episode with everyone you know. Get them to listen to it so they can start thinking about it, so they can chime in in an intelligent way and get involved. This is where this issue with the 10J rule, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, 10J discussion, that is a federal issue that that transcends both the, fed, the, the Federal Wildlife Agency that oversees the Endangered Species Act as well as the United States Forest Service and BLM. It's a federal issue, which means every citizen in the United States has equal standing in this conversation. Meaning, you now, little old lady in Connecticut, you in Washington, you in California, you in Nebraska, Florida, you all have a say here. And the Fish and Wildlife Service will, or will not, listen to what you say based on what you provide as far as your comment. But the 10J rule gives you an option to, to chime in. If you value elk hunting in Colorado, listen to this podcast, share this podcast, ruminate on it, pick up the pieces, and then make some comments to the 10J rule. If you are a Colorado resident, this is where the Senate and House discussions at the Colorado State Legislature are going to be important. 
let's just assume for a minute that it does indeed pass out of the Senate and it goes to the House of Representatives in the state of Colorado. In order for it to pass out of the Senate of Colorado, it's going to have, you, you, the sportsman, are going to have to have a showing. The the livestock industry is going to be there. The private land interests are going to be there. It's going to be, no one is going to be there to step up for the average Colorado sportsman. You're going to have to do it on your own. Get a hold of Justin Nolan. I believe it's Hunters for Colorado at gmail.com. I have rambled long enough. This was a great part two of the discussion with Mike Schlegel, former elk research biologist for Idaho Fish and Game, turned into regional manager, turned into a retired professional who is an avid bow hunter who's active in sportsman conservation and and species conservation organizations. Um, folks, it was a great discussion. There you go. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop my rambling. Dive in. Enjoy. Well, I uh, I went back and found specifics on the introduction per se in the Yellowstone and Idaho. Perfect. And 95, um, 14 wolves were taken to Yellowstone and 15 to Idaho. Idaho released theirs right away. Yellowstone held theirs for five months before releasing them to acclimate them to the area. They had a pretty good size uh, pen to hold them in. Yeah. And then in 96, another 17 were taken to Yellowstone and 20 to Idaho. So the total number brought in from Canada was 66. Total, okay. 31 to Yellowstone and 35 to Idaho. Gotcha. Okay, and then um, by 2008, the estimated population for the Northern Rocky Mountain population was 1,645. Across both, yeah. So so that's... that's that was in the northern yep. Rocky Mountain and at that time, area. And at that time, had anybody, had any of those made it into Washington, Oregon yet, or not yet? No, no, okay. no. Well, I shouldn't say no, but I, I think... Sustaining Some had gone into... Oregon by then. I'd have to check and see specifically. And, you know, that one uh, from Oregon, uh, 07, that went into California, you know, uh, what the time frame was on that. But, you know, obviously the, some of them started dispersing right away. And, you know, it was a long time before he found a meat down there. So, you know, and he was radio collared, so you know where he went. But right, the ones right. that weren't radio collared, you have no idea. But, um, so... Between 95 and 96 to uh, 2008, well, let me back up. On, on that northern Rocky Mountain, 1645, uh, it, there were 217 packs documented in that number. Okay. I'm right. And you know. based on those numbers, uh, a 22% increase per year was calculated. 
Good info. And at this time, and this at that, there was no hunting going on. Correct. The only hunting or killing was through uh, depredation claim. Uh, Idaho exploded their first season in 09. The wolves were in, or, uh, delisted in Idaho on May 5th of 2011. Okay, yeah. And we floated a hunt in mm-hmm. 09, were litigated, and then since uh, no season in 10, but since uh, 2011, we've had a season hunting and trapping annually. Gotcha. And like you said before, you know, Idaho kind of made a a, a judgment call of saying, because you guys started off, or the Fed started off with that 150 wolves, you know, kind of benchmark, but Idaho said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll concede, we'll, we'll let it go to 500. 550, yeah, 500, yeah. Okay, and but even even with the level of hunting and trapping that you guys have now, it's still, you know, you've, you still have plenty of wolves. Yeah, and in eleven when we started the seasons, the estimated state population was about seven fifty. And uh in twenty one the population estimate was fifteen fifty. And that was in light of increased opportunity, you know, increased tags, increased season length. Uh, some units had no season length and still the population took off. And a, a lot of it's simply due to the fact that it's um, pretty tough to access a lot of the wolf country in the winter. It's snowmobile only, basically. Okay, so th- then this is where we were, this was one of the things that we wanted to talk about um, pre- in the in the previous one. So how, be, let, then let's just, I guess let's just go talk about elk for real quick then. Um, because you're saying that some of those areas are difficult to access where the wolves are now in the winter, but you're saying it still had, obviously the wolves are not going to be there if the elk are not there. If there's, if there's some sort of, of food, you know, prey base there. So are some of these. Moose are, moose are elk, you know, and to some degree deer and antelope, but it's primarily moose and elk. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So how, because some of the, well, one of the biggest things that the animal activists at least are talking about now they're using as their feather in their cap is they're saying that, well, Idaho now has more elk than it did before, than than there was before the moot, or excuse me, before the wolves were reintroduced. Yeah. So talk us through that a minute. How does, how does that shape out? Like, because my, my question is, is, we hear two different stories and I, and I would like to try to connect the dots on reality and, and how this works out because you've got some people that say before there was wolves in Idaho, you had elk scattered across the landscape of Idaho and the hunting was great. Everything was glorious, blah, blah, blah. And then wolves came in and completely wiped elk off the map in certain areas and wolves were devastating and horrible. And then on the flip side, you have the animal activists saying, you know, the wolves would be doing much better if there wasn't, you know, killing and slaughtering of wolves. And it's egregious of what Idaho and Montana and Wyoming are doing. And, and you know, Idaho is is a whole scale slaughter of wolves. And there's no reason for it because elk are actually doing better than they were before the wolves were on the landscape. Obviously, either either somebody's lying 
or there is a lot of devil in the details that's just not being discussed. Can you help us well, fill in those? Can you help us fill in that? Yeah, it's it's a distribution thing. Um, the uh, backcountry elk um, in the wilderness areas, you know, they're declining. The uh, what we call the maybe the front units where it's kind of a, a uh, there's an integration between mountainous areas and ag lands. In those particular units, a lot of the elk now are going to the ag land and our elk depredations have increased significantly as well as the, the payout. Um, I've got a, I got some, I don't know how you want to display these graphics, but um, this is what the, the uh, complaints look like on the last 10 years. And the, um, the bar, the line is the complaints that resulted in a claim. And that um, middle bar that's orange. Oops, there, there. Oh, there yeah, got it, got yeah. it, yeah. Yep. Okay, the one that I have the little mark under. Yep. That's the highest one. In 2017, the legislature passed uh, a new depredation claim bill, and it made it easier for claims to be filed. Okay. So, and that's... Uh, but the the solid line is the ones that were paid out. So you can see that that's increasing. Right, right, right. And <laughs> now you're this is, now this is just another bar graph showing the same thing with that uh, 2017, where where it changed to. Uh, All right, uh, let me let me ask a clarification. When you're talking about depredation, are you talking about? payouts because wolves killed livestock or are you talking about payouts of elk destroying hay and and other stuff primarily agricultural uh, payback on croplands okay uh, so elk uh, elk are are negatively impacting croplands and so because the wolves are pushing let me no um let me let me let me say this correctly because Pressure has increased in the backcountry, quote unquote, areas. Elk are going to try to find some some refuge area somewhere. They're going to move on the landscape. They elk are finding it's safer or more refuge down in these big open flat open agriculture lands where they can see wolves coming from a, a, a longer distance. And so, because they have they have moved or change their distribution on the landscape and have congregated down on ag grounds, the crop damage from elk has gone through the roof. Okay. As an example, here's a, an, an example of how the, the landowner permits have changed. So the landowner permits wow. are authorized because of chronic depredations to their croplands and it's almost you know up to 3,000 permits now that just go to the farmer to dispose of and it's based on certain acreage you know 160 or 640 acres gets a permit and then it increments up to that but it caps out so that it's like I think five or so is the max any landowner can get regardless 
how much land they have. Gotcha. And then in addition to these landowner permits, the department also has uh, controlled hunts that they target these areas. Gotcha. So, okay. So for the, so you just, it's, it's almost just a straight linear increase, what you just showed. Yeah, exactly. It's, just, it's a straight linear increase. So uh, now are, when you say that the landowner gets those, those tags, how, okay. What, how do I want to put this? For instance, out here, if we have depra- uh, uh, crop damage from deer on ag ground, we can actually apply for damage tags and they in Kansas will give them and they have to go to the landowner. The landowner is not allowed to transfer those tags. The landowner has to go do those damage and it's antlerless only. And you're not allowed to do anything with that animal. Literally, you can you can dig a hole and, and dump the carcass in the in the dirt. It, it it drives us mad because you're not now I understand both sides of it. The, the state says if you think there's too many deer, we, and we don't have much of this issue anymore. CWD is taking care of that. But in the when we first started, there was a time where we were like, do we start applying for crop damage tax? And the state said, okay, if you think you've got crop damage, you think you have too many deer, we'll help you alleviate your deer pressure. But you cannot get a secondary benefit from that. We, you're not going to sell those tags. You're not going to give those tags away. And, and you're not going to salvage the meat or anything like that. This is not a a out-of-season private landowner hunting season. This is, you've got too many deer, so you need to shoot some deer uh, to, to alleviate crop damage. And so the stipulation is, you can't do anything with those carcasses. Well, you're talking summer. Well, you got does, you got dependent young. Like, so not only do you have an ethical, moral conundrum of, am I shooting a doe which that has twin fawns out there or whatever that, that I, now, and and not only do I have to do that, I have to just shove it in a ditch and waste the entire carcass? No, we're not doing that. And so we went the route of just increasing our doe harvest in the winter. How does Idaho set, uh, structure are those just antlerless tags then? Or are they are they a considered a depredation tag? Are they allowed to use that carcass? What? How does that work? Some, some are antlerless. Some will restrict the proportion of antler to antlerless. Um, they try to avoid having uh, taking females, deer or elk, prior to like mid-August so that if a, a mother's killed this young's going to survive right so uh, and the landowners in certain instances can sell the tags and um their their acknowledgement of access for sportsmen keys into this uh, you know there's a caveat there that if they don't allow sportsmen's access then it restricts how they're handled in the depredation end of it because you know obviously it's hard to control the numbers if they don't let the hunters there so to speak gotcha but again it's um the other thing i looked at is um prior to wolves um when you looked at the statewide harvest approximately 75 to 80 percent was antlered and 25 to 20 percent antlerless and now it's almost 50 50 so 
even though they're saying that our harvest is the same. And if you look at the bull harvest, it's basically the same or maybe slightly depressed, but the cow harvest has come up significantly. So, and, and I'm okay. So what are we looking at as far as cow calf ratios? Then it varies from area to area. Um, in, in our, uh, several brushfield habitats, you know, they aren't as rich nutritively uh, as a grassland. So in, in those populations, uh, 25 to 35 is probably, you know, the best you're going to do. And in the grassland uh, compose, or components of winter range, they're going to be in the 40 to 50 cap cow ratio. Even with in the face of wolves right now? Um, I'd have to, to check that, but it, I would say in, in the areas where wolves are considered either the main significant factor or a contributing, the calf-cow ratios are going to be less. That's that's pretty well documented. Okay. Um, let me see. So I had one, get, one I showed you last time that maybe I can find real quickly here that shows... Um, Yeah, the uh, solid blue are the ones that are pre uh, predator limited. The pink are suspected of being predator limited. Gotcha. Yeah, pull that back just a little bit so I can see the rest. Because you've got, so that, that central mountain chunk of real estate. All right, so panhandle is is that moderate suspected the yeah, panhandle is this upper yep. part here. Yep, that that's suspected. This is a major. This is the major roadless wilderness type areas through here. Dark blue. That that chunk of real estate that yep. largely is is on the eastern half of the upper portion of that, and then yeah. all the blue area is low predation rate. Correct. Yes. Okay. So yeah, but I mean, other than you've got that strip along. Washington and Oregon that, that has a little bit blue, but pretty much everything in that that pointy part of Idaho is either blue or you're either heavily limited by wolves or you're moderately limited by wolves as far as the population is concerned. Uh, I haven't seen the regulations yet, but a friend called me asking me where I was going to hunt elk this year, and he said that uh, the panhandle uh, has significantly reduced their elk hunting opportunity this year and we set a two-year regulation so for 23 and 24 the uh, hunting opportunity for elk has been restricted either through uh, uh, a quota on tags for a specific area or uh, like going from either sex archery to bull only that type of stuff shortening the seasons oh, which and and i i think I've talked about this and many other people have talked about this for, for Colorado. We, we know that that's going to happen. And especially in some of these areas and what's beautiful, not beautiful, but what's nice about having this conversation with you is you guys are, you, you have real world on the ground data right now that um, the general public of Colorado has been shielded from like, honestly, because the agency has the data agency have the experts, but the, and, and the agency 
has wanted to have this conversation, but the agency's been put under a gag order and the Wildlife Commission doesn't even want to hear it because the Wildlife Commission, again, has been cherry-picked and stacked with wolf advocates. So anything that this, any discussion around this comes up, the wolf advocates to say, oh, no, 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 Idaho has more elk than they've had before. The wolves are what made Idaho so vibrant now as far as their elk population. So are we talking about, if we look at a statewide number of animals, number of elk, let's just focus on elk. We, you just said, okay, so we got, so we still have a, a, a separation here. We, you said that, uh, and let's just put it in the backcountry areas that Selway Bitterroot, and let's talk about the the Panhandle chunk of real estate. You had a lot of elk either be eaten by wolves or and cow calf ratios driven downward, and or you've had, and I guess, uh, in, in areas where those in areas in those locations where elk do not have easy dispersal to human related sanctuary areas then the wolves are going to have 365 day unfettered access to them however those areas where you start to go from the mountains down into the crop ground down in the lower valleys and crop grounds those elk in their home ranges have had the ability to move out of the wilderness type settings, the backcountry type settings, and move into those uh, human dominated uh, landscapes because elk are easily habituated to human presence, especially if that human presence is not a threat and it's it's consistent. So when we look at numbers, the claim is Idaho has more elk and, and that's where they leave it. They don't yeah. qualify it. They don't qualify it as well. There's certain areas that have more. So overall numbers of elk in, in Idaho, are you guys the same? And they just, yeah, make you? I, yeah I, it's, um, and I'd have to go through, say the most recent uh, PR report and go through each of the regions and, and add up their elk totals and compare it to say 20 years ago. But I think, on a total numbers wise, uh, elk number statewide, we're probably on par. It's just that the distribution is resulting in a higher proportion of cow harvest. So to alleviate so. depredation. So you know, I had another chart I was going to show you here. You mentioned uh, this displays um, the solid black line is stored. Like in the winter where you've got hay uh, stacks for cattle yep. versus this light gray is planted crops where you would have, you know, a grain field where the elk are right. getting into a field, oats or something. So it's significantly into the stored, the depredations are keyed in on the, the stored crops in the winter. Gotcha. Gotcha. So they're they're stacking in on, on hay piles. Yeah. And, okay. This is a, a graphic of the cost of depredations that have been last 10 years, uh, what's been paid out. And it's up, what is it, the upper line is like 250000 Right, right. So that that one almost looks, I mean, it's oh, it started to jump into an exponential type of. Here's one that shows the depredations by species. And you can see elk is the right. primary one. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. So, okay, so let me, okay, I, I don't need my black hat, but I'll just put devil's advocate here. So 
the wolf advocates would say, well, that could easily be that if if you're talking about elk coming in and hitting a hay pile from some landowner, then why are you like just put a freaking fence around it? Like like put a 12 foot high mesh fence around your stackyard and be done with it. We do that. And and they've been decreasing the number of depredations that way, but new ones keep cropping up every year. You know, right. if they don't get fenced out of this guy's property, they go to that property. And pretty, you know, over time, you're going to have them all fenced out. But you, it's just a, a chess game each winter as to what stack they're going to hit that isn't protected. Well, and the other thing too, and again, I'm playing devil's advocate when I say that, what the animal activists don't realize either is that that shit ain't sheep. Like, it's not like land, you know, if you're a hay farm, well, I guess I don't know. Most of these, most of these landowners, I doubt are, are making money hand over fist to where they've just got free cash that they can burn in the fireplace at night. So putting up a, a, a elk exclosure around a large stackyard, especially if you're a cattle operation that has a couple thousand, a couple hundred, a couple thousand head of cattle, that's a lot of stored feed. That's a large area, or there's multiple areas across the property that, or their their lands that they have to have these stackyards in. So there's numerous stackyards, and you're talking very, very tall, very, very robust fences that are very, very expensive. And I don't, I've got to believe, I know that Colorado on their uh, game damage stuff, there is money that the state can help provide to landowners who want to do these things. But I don't think, Idaho's not bankrolling 100% of those projects, are they? Um, no, not 100%. Okay, so but, is there assistance? Yes, there is. But they, they are, again... Yeah, it, it varies with each operator as to how what their situation is and how they've been trying to uh, prevent the damage. And and the major issue I see is, you know, these elk have chosen not to winter where they historically wintered. So if you if they move down into this ag land and they get fenced out of all of their food source. You know, either they're going to learn to go back to the mountains and deal with the wolves or they're going to start uh, dropping over like we see in Wyoming and uh, Colorado or uh, yeah, Wyoming and parts of Colorado this year for the winter. Utah. Yeah. So, yeah, Utah. But let me OK, let me again play devil's advocate. Am I in some of these mountainous areas of Idaho? Am I correct in assuming that the winter range component of the landscape that the elk are going to be relying heavy upon is shrub based or is it grass? Depends on the area. The north north of the Salmon River is predominantly cerebral brush field habitats in the majority of the elk habitat. And up north in the Panhandle, it's uh, logging and cerebral brush fields through burning. Okay. So, okay. Okay. All right. All right. Now. Okay. And that's that I'm glad, I'm glad I asked that, that I'm glad you clarified that because that was going to be my point is if we take, if it, in some of these shrublands, I don't want to put this. It's just like us with the weeds. And I talk about this with my habitat stuff with my, my landowners out here all the time. 
if you're an absentee landowner and you want to do habitat stuff on your property, the, the landscape does not stop. It does not rest for you. It doesn't have a nine to five job. It doesn't have kids in soccer. Things will just continue to grow and they can either grow in a good way or grow in a bad way. And so in some of these habitats where you've got, say, a shrub component, that herbivory without outside input on the system, whether it's fire, whether it's logging or disturbance, we see this with bighorn sheep. Well, how, we didn't even talk about your your banquet this past weekend, but we see this with bighorn sheep where a lot of the range has just become so shrub dominated, but those shrubs are getting large enough and old enough and decadent enough to where they, it's no longer a beneficial forage for those animals that want to get a hold of it. We I, I talked about this in unit. There's a unit in Colorado, 501. Um, there was a very high elevation park that, you know, 20 years ago, the subalpine willow was, you know, six to say 12 inches high across this large park area. And the elk would just stack in there like cordwood. Fast forward. Now we go in there and that willow is 10 feet tall. And people are like, well, there's no elk here in there anymore, but there's moose in here. And people were trying to make the claim that, well, moose are, are excluding elk out of the parkland this park area. And I said, well, are the moose excluding the elk from a behavioral interaction standpoint, or has the habitat converted and it's no longer favorable elk habitat? It is favorable moose habitat. And so the elk said, screw a bunch of this. We can't access the good tastiness. We're leaving. And the moose were like, well, hell, this will work for me. And so they moved in. So if you've got elk that have now moved out of some of your shrubland winter ranges when you say that the elk are going to have to someday maybe learn to go back up there if there has been nothing to keep that shrubland component in an in, in at least some level of disturbance where there's some early successional rotation a person could argue that that winter range might actually no longer be very suitable productive winter range. Am I right? Sure. It's just a natural plant succession stage uh, cycle. And, so, you know, after a fire, uh, the research that was done in the area, uh, in the Clearwater, showed that, you know, a, a spring burn um, has a modest amount of positiveness. You know, the the um, it doesn't kill the plant; it just kills the portion above ground, so you get resprouting. And there are certain plants that it takes fire to cause germination, so you'll get uh, some new germination that way. But on a fall burn, the uh, the generation of new growth is much greater. Uh, but the issue is the cost of controlling a spring burn versus a fall burn. Right. One one is hot and dry, and it, it's very easy to let that, or it's very easy for that fire to get, get away. Versus in the, the Forest spring. Services, yeah. the last couple of years, they've had some significant issues with their prescribed fires getting away from them and burning homes and that type of thing. In, I, in, in Idaho. In spring, when you, when you torch it off at the bottom of the hill, it burns up to the snow line and goes out. Well, it sounds... That, again, that's, uh, you know, those in Idaho... Uh, 
66% roughly of the state's publicly owned. So even though Fish and Game is legislatively mandated to manage the wildlife, they have no control over the habitat. So a lot of our elk decline situation, in addition to wolves, is the fact that the, the Forest Service hasn't been doing their due justice to rehabilitate these uh, several brush fields. And you One guys example is the, the Clearwater Forest and now has joined with the, the Nesper, so it's the Nez Clear Forest. But when the Clearwater was a standalone forest, in their 2008 forest plan, they identified declining elk numbers and plant succession, advancing plant succession as the issue. So we're in 2022 now, and they have done very little to rehabilitate those ranges. All right. So, let me, so and that was one thing I forgot. I didn't really emphasize enough on our first discussion is <clears throat> when the department went to bull only hunting in 76, it allowed the populations to take off. And by the late 80s into the early 90s, the populations had caught up with the capacity of the habitat. And we were starting to see declines in our surveys. So uh, at that time, they ramped up some uh, some cow harvest, and you know, to supplement uh, the bull harvest and and try to keep the population at the habitat uh, level. Uh, so, but then, you know, when the wolves showed up, it it didn't matter what kind of habitat you got out there. They're, you know, they're they're gone. Okay. And with wolves on the calves, uh, you know, the when we switched to bull only hunting in 76, you know, and the populations took off, that was in light of black bear and mountain lion predation. And prior to that, if I kept a, well, a winter severity index, so I could track one or compare one winter to the other as far as its severity. And and at that time we were doing a trend count. We were just counting the same area, basically the same way every year. And obviously, when you have an open winter, you know the they'll change distribution. So sometimes you you miss more that way. But over time, if you were to document a drop in numbers because of a severe winter, in the next couple of years you'd see them be bumping back up even higher than they were when the winter happened. So again, my point is with with without the wolf, the bear and lion predation was not significant enough to prevent the population growth that we saw. To rebound. Gotcha. And the the bear bear mortality, as we discussed last time, is really early in the calf's life cycle, you know, within the first probably two to three weeks. And most of the telemetry studies and, uh, and predation on wolves and elk shows that the Wolf predation on elk calves is from six months to 12 months of age. So they're the ones that can't keep up in the winter when they're being chased. And, you know, this old adage that the, the predators take the weak, the sick, and the old. Well, they take any animal that's vulnerable. And it just right. so happens that the young and the old and the weak are the ones that are most vulnerable. 
Well, and the other thing too that I've always thought about that that statement because again, I, I'm dealing with it real time out here just with our coyote population. You know this 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 idea that the wolves only take the sick and the old and the weak. That's not that that should not be a significant percentage of your ungulate population. Sick, old, and weak should be a smaller subset of your population. But if you have if you have wolves across the landscape at a high level, or at the very least, a wolf pack is in conjunction with a defined elk population over an extended period of time, I'm sorry, at some point, they're going to run out of sick, old, and weak. And they're not going to sit back and, and the wolves are not going to sit back and be like, you know, guys, we... We can't eat this week again because there's no sick elk out there. We got to wait until we have an injured one. No, they just get better and better at better at hunting. And they start taking more and more healthy, older, mature age class animals. I mean, we're dealing with, with coyotes on the landscape. So that is another one of those fallacies that I just don't hear in the in public being talked about in rebuttal to some of the claims that the animal activists are saying because and I, and I was smiling when you were you were going through some of the habitat stuff and I'd like to go back to that if we're talking about you know you're watching and this is across the board I've, I've talked about how awesome the Kayabab and Coconino National Forces are down in Arizona with just their their really um consistent prescribed burn you know uh, manage forest management um if, but you you can watch across Colorado and you watch that age class of the of your forest habitats just getting more and more and more mature more and more and more climax which means they're they're way less productive for ungulates and other wildlife as they could be two things hit me when you were talking about with Idaho number one where's this wolf the beneficial trophic cascade that the activists talk about? Isn't it supposed to be Kumbaya where the wolves are are helping the plant communities be more vibrant, be more productive, be better on the landscape for all critters? That's that that doesn't work out that way, folks. And then the other thing that that I think really I think for this Idaho versus Colorado discussion is you guys in Idaho don't have near the population of people that we do. It went we, I say we, in Colorado does. You guys at least have logging. You guys have at least, you're doing some prescribed burns in places, or at least whether it's it's adequate enough or not, at least they were. But you guys actually have some semblance of forestry practice across the state that is at least churning some of that forest habitat back into an early successional state. Colorado, other unless we're talking about the wildland urban interface, which people call that wooey, that you know, where you've got forest lands coming up against back, you know, subdivisions and housing, where you have forest fire fuels load increasing, where it increases fire wildfire risk on on communities. Colorado, you don't find you, you don't have logging. Like you don't have any sort of commercial operation in, in in Colorado to speak of at all. Number one, number two, prescribed burning, prescribed burning on a, on a large scale for habitat and and productivity of and and uh, forest management. No, no, and and numerous times it'll get shut down just because 
people on the front range will say, well, we've got too many people and the air quality issues that come from burning are too problematic. So no, we don't want burning to happen in the state. So we don't even like, even when you, Mike, are saying the limitations that Idaho is seeing with forest and shrubland, winter range, habitat, productivity, Idaho has more flexibility to do what needs to be done than Colorado does. And even Idaho isn't achieving what needs to be done. How in the hell do we expect Colorado to do any of this stuff? No way. Brad, a good point with the fire or the smoke aspect. Um, unfortunately, most of the smoke out of the Clearwater Basin ends up in Missoula. And there is a uh, air quality committee that has to be consulted before you know, a prescribed fire is initiated just to, so everybody's on the same page and it's done when it's not going to have a, a significant impact and, in and the Bitterroot Valley. And I'm sure all of the California transplants to Missoula are, are very on, on board with, you know, procur- you know, per, uh, Proactive wildland, you know, management, that type of stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. So, no, this but is anyway. Ha- you know, habitat, you know, is probably priority, and then predation is secondary as far as controlling the the elk populations in most areas. Although, like I, I, I would argue that in a wilderness setting, regardless of what quality your habitat is without some kind of wolf management and numbers, your, your elk population is going to be pretty stagnant. And the same thing you can you see it right now in Yellowstone. You know, when the wolves were first introduced there, the population estimate was around anywhere from 16 to 18,000. And what is it now? Less than five. And, the the fact that some of the wolf packs initially when there was lots of forage for them you know like the drooler pack at one time i think had 39 animals in it and it was just a function of how much you know prey base was there right and um you know the drooler pack doesn't even exist anymore <laughs> but yet it had at one point it had 39 animals in it yeah so like we talked about last time, you've you've gone and kind of skimmed through the Colorado plan. Now that's been essentially finalized now. Um, and the commission just had a meeting and pretty much all that th- phase three to phase four language that was all contentious before, that's been just absolutely gutted. It, it, like there's, there's, there is no discussion of going from phase three to phase four because well, of course we, we don't, we can't, there's no way we can predict any of what the future looks like. So there's really no need to talk about any sort of control at this point. We'll save that for later. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So yeah, there- I read the, an article that was published after this meeting on what last night, it was on the sixth and how they, they're, even the agency is saying we aren't going to define what constitutes a significant depredation. We're yes. going to let the people on the ground filter that out. Well, that's pretty subjective, and right. how, you know, and it seems like it's going to just be a guarantee of a litigation because that, how do you determine one person's view of what's significant 
is really significant. Wow. Whereas and, if in Idaho and Montana and Washington, you know, they're saying X number of attacks by a specific pack over a time frame constitutes a significant impact. Yeah, so, and I, yeah. I th- and I, I I thank you for bringing that up because that's absolutely the case, and it's being it's being driven by the animal activists. They they don't want any sort of definition because they want that subjectivity because every time something happens, they will have plausible deniability to just constantly shift the goalpost. And their goal, and I've been I've been pounding this uh, into everybody's heads that's listening to me, guys, when you're dealing with animal activists like this, their goal is their ultimate goal is no animal dies at the hand of man, period. No wolf dies at the hand of man because, again, Idaho, Wyoming, and, and and Montana are the evil, 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 you know, creatures on the landscape where you guys are, you know, just indiscriminately slaughtering wolves, and and it's so egregious that we need to create Colorado in a in a more in a in a better image, so to speak. So, the landowners are rightfully speaking up, and and they're getting active, and and they're engaging. But that but is, and if you're following what's happening in Montana. You know, their elk management is really up in the air. And a lot of it's because of these, what they call shoulder seasons, which are specifically to address depredations. <laughs> and you're you're wow. getting elk populations increasing in areas where you don't want them. So you've got to keep whittling away at them to keep them at a socially and economically acceptable level. So right. it, it's again, it gets back to the distribution. You can have the same number of elk, but they're just in different places. And even though they're the same number, they can be causing more problems, you know, with the depredation stuff. So. Well, and see, and so that, and what I I think is valuable for this, and I hope everybody that's in Colorado is listening to this, is so there's there's literally at this point now there's three different aspects of of this discussion that need to be brought to the public. Uh, the, the 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 people of Colorado need to understand. Number one, the people of Colorado were sold on this wolf reintroduction thing. It was as it was going to cost you know eight hundred thousand dollars or so, nine hundred thousand dollars. It 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 was it wasn't going to cost that much to do this, and we're only talking about a handful of of wolves. So it'd be a neat idea that doesn't cost that much. Okay, well that's out the window. All right. So because we're already we're already spending millions of dollars. The state of Colorado is already spending millions of dollars on this. They're talking about, okay, when wolves are are put on the landscape, it's going to cost. We know that wolves are going to take livestock. So there needs to be a a compensation plan put in place to compensate landowners or or, uh, livestock owners for loss of livestock. And we know that there's now a, a dollar figure going to be associated with that, which is in the millions of dollars, which that was never sold to the public. What never gets talked about is, okay, the wolves are going to go on the landscape. They are going to concern, consume an X number of, of elk per year, which then therefore, because the elk or because wolves have priority on the landscape, we're going to have to remove hunters from the landscape human recreational hunting off the landscape because we twofold one the agency has already said that we need to manage these data analysis units these elk herds at their upper population level 
just to make sure there's enough elk on the landscape to feed the wolves. So by doing that, you're removing hunters, human hunters off the landscape. And then, so there's layer number one where you're moving, you're removing tag dollars. And then number two, the wolves are going to be keeping those populations at a much lower level to begin with. So that's an additional group of hunters that are going to be removed from the landscape. When they ran, started running some of the numbers on that, you're talking of a loss of revenue, at least in the 30 million ballpark that's never been talked about within the public. But what you're bringing up is a third level or whatever, another level of depredation is in the fact that we're the, the plan calls for compensating landowners who lose their 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 livestock to wolves. But where is the discussion about bumping up or or the where's the discussion about the reality that there is going to be an increased expenditure on crop related depredation payouts from the agency because you're going to have more cattle or more cattle, more elk moving into livestock areas and and, and ag ground areas. The amount of money that we're going to lose as an income stream into the state is massive at the at the at the cost of tens of millions but the expenditure that the taxpayer of Colorado is going to ha- or the sportsman of Colorado depending on where the money's coming from the amount of money that the that the the public is going to have to put back into this is in the tune of tens of millions this is these are things that the 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 Colorado public has been shielded from and well, I, I'm interested in your assessment that the Colorado public, because in this document I reviewed this morning, it said 46% of the respondents to the wolf management program were out of state. And then what's the, <laughs> so, and then what, and then what was the, other, then what was the other figure there? What was it like the, the other 20 or 30, I don't have it in front of me, uh, the other, like, what was it? How many percent was just from the front range from the urban corridor? It was like, like 20 yeah, or there was a 20 36 and 24 percent something like right. that or it, only 15 yeah, percent came. I, I have it written down someplace if i i don't know where it is. yeah i i yeah so it was like 15 percent were the, the people ones that, that are, had to live with it yeah right i mean this yeah. is this is the so i just got done i just released a podcast with a couple other guys uh last night or t- i just released it today i recorded it last night so you probably saw it's gone everywhere um, this Colorado Senate Bill 256, basically uh, introduced by the Colorado State Senate. And what it's saying is no paws on the ground, no wolves on the ground until two things happen. Number one, yeah, yeah. the 10J the, the rule is approved by, we, we the Colorado secures a 10J determination and a full EIS is done uh, on the landscape. Now, there was a third little part of a clause in there, which this is the third part of that was, and oh, by the way, the time for an appeal or review of the 10J has passed without an appeal or review being filed, or the determination has been finally affirmed that all the blah, 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 blah. That last little clause there is the one that just poked, just just took a hot poker and just shoved it square in the eye of the activists because- the activists have spent their life fighting the wolf issue in court 
on on their behalf for their special interest this clause right here just flat out puts it puts the entire wolf reintroduction uh in jeopardy by putting the entire process at risk of because i think what they said was in for a 10j appeal it's like a six-year time period here's what they mentioned yeah yeah, so of course the the wolf advocates lost their ever living minds over this, and if I was to play again, if I was to put my other hat on, I could understand why. You know, if if we if the sportsman had a bill that was it was pro sportsman, and and the animal activists try to write in some bullshit that said we get to sue you eight ways from Sunday for the next at least six years, we'd be like, no, we don't want that. But I just thought it was ironic that they're screaming of bloody murder about the possibility of of court injunction on their project when they've spent the better part of 20 plus years using the courts to inject injunct it. Anyway, the issue, Before I forget it. Like, uh, um, you know, getting back to the cost of having wolves. Um, I have several friends that, you know, have either worked or are continuing with the Oregon department of fish and wildlife and their biologists, spend an enormous amount of their time just verifying wolf depredations on livestock. I mean, it's it's almost a full-time job for them anymore. So other stuff, other management activities are going by the wayside. Well, to the, to and, and we can argue this either way, to the wolf advocates credit, the, the wildlife commissioners touched in and reading and others, they they are pushing hard for the agency to hire um, designated wolf depredation specialists to where that all that's all their job is is to go out and look at at suspected depredation and determine whether or not it was uh, wolf depredation. Now, if you listen to now so in your in, for what you just identified, that sounds like a great idea because. Let's just not let's not burden our everyday guys and gals on the landscape with this. Let's get somebody that, that that's their task force, that's their team, and that's all they do. That makes sense. Right up until the point you say, okay, but who gets the decision on who they hire? Because we can have a wolf depredation specialist that knows what they're looking at and can say, yes, that's a that that is absolutely wolf depredation. But you can also have a wolf depredation specialist that says, "No, I don't. I don't think that's wolves. That looks more like coyote. I think that's bear. I think that's..." Uh, and then, oh, hold on a minute. So it sounds good on paper. Again, this is where you get the devil in the detail. Who gets the decision to hire that individual? Is it going to be up to the the wildlife commission slash animal activists, or is it going to be up to the biologist in the agency? That's going to be the that that's the question. I would hope that it would be a some kind of a joint committee that involved the livestock industry as well. Well, you, that's you, that's where you're going to that's where your big rub's going to be is if you have this professional saying it's not and the operator saying, well, you know, I last night there was a wolf standing right here. Right. Well. That may not be the one, you know, he may have been there, but he didn't kill this animal. Right. So, right. Yeah. And so, all right. So here's a question to you. And 
I, I don't, it, you, you feel free to answer it or don't answer it. I, I, cause I, 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 this is where I exit my realm of expertise. The, the Colorado bill, like I said, <clears throat> this bill that's, that's being entertained before the, the state legislature right now says a 10 J ruling needs to be obtained and there needs to be a full EIS and the period of appeals has has gone by the period of appeals this the, the the legal challenge portion of it there's there's more it's a fluid situation right now that is the sticking part that the governor has already said the governor's been trying to kill this bill since day 1 he didn't even want it to get it out of the ag committee okay he said he was going to veto it nix it our discussion last night was talking about, I don't think this is going to pass anyway, but maybe if the sportsmen and everybody rallied and made a big, big show at the, the legislature, maybe it could get out of the Senate. And then what the hell happens in the House? Because it's going to be, but regardless, now there's rumor that maybe, just maybe, if they take out this appeals challenge time period and the rest of it does pass, that maybe the governor would sign it. Now, from a tactics standpoint, dealing with animal activists, I, I'm skeptical. To me, it sounds like hanging a carrot out there for everybody to nibble. Like, listen, 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 listen. We know that this appeals portion is egregious and, and the, the governor's not going to sign it. But if you take that out, well, the governor might sign the rest of this. And so we go ahead and you take that that clause out. It goes through the the legislative process and they put pressure on it and they kill the thing anyway. Or or let's just say it passes and then the governor says, you know what? No, I, I'm, I'm not going to be. It's like, so we just took it out for nothing. So I don't know how to play these things. But what I do know is for the average uninformed public, if if you talk to them about the 10J rule and why it's important, as well as the EIS, those two things sound reasonable. When, when you look at the level of impact that you're going to do by bringing wolves in, having the management flexibility of the 10J rule makes absolute sense. As well as we need a, not this expedited, uh, no economic impact EIS. We, we need a full EIS. So we can look at what the full impact of the state of Colorado is going to be. That makes sense. So my question to you. Having lived through this and watched what's happened across the years with both on the ground realities. As well as the court battles. We right now, regardless of what happens with this this Senate bill or this state legislation. The 10J rule, the, ten, the the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service public comment for the 10J rule is open. What should sportsmen or landowners or professional, like what, what should the public, and I, there you just what, like what which what what comments should be put before the US Fish and Wildlife Service to convince the Fish and Wildlife Service 
that they should do the 10J on their own and they should do the full EIS on their own. Do you think there's any, is there, is there something that the public can share and bring to the Fish and Wildlife Service to that, that would be substantive, that's important? Like what message should sportsmen be bringing to the Fish and Wildlife Service now? I would think, you know, the lack of any uh, sideboards on wolf numbers or distribution is something that they should key in on and, you know, convince the, the Fish and Wildlife Service that without some sideboards on where the wolves are going to be actively managed or to be actively managed, you have to have the sideboards and um, without some kind of management uh, an opportunity to regulate numbers and distribution, they're going to be all over the board. And that should not be acceptable, not only to the sportsmen, but to the general population, you'd think, you'd hope. Now, here's a question then for you. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, is this a, is this a true or false statement? Fish and Wildlife Service does not have the authority to stop the plan that Colorado wants to do. Because Colorado can reintroduce wolves and they're just flat out subject to the ESA, period. So if if people are saying we, we need to have these sideboards on the population, what 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 hammer what 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 could the u.s fish and wildlife service even say like we agree and like just leave it nebulous or can they say you know under this 10j we will only allow xyz you know how how does how you know like I, uh, to me it's from what i remember in dealing with the 10j rule is the fish and wildlife service has to consider the impact to private as well as federal lands on their recovery plans. And that they have to look at economic gains and losses as well as human safety and all that, those sideboards that go with having an, an endangered species recovered. What okay. proportion of Colorado was publicly owned? Between state and federal, roughly. Uh, I don't know, but I, I would bet on a on a ballpark. I'll bet you it's somewhere in the 50-50 range because yeah. you got that whole eastern portion of the state, and then you've got the central mountain chunk, but then you've got all the the ag ground in interlaced on that western slope side point. So on the outside, I would say it's probably fifty percent. But on, it seems like you know, in order, uh, secondly. In, when, without numbers in their program, when does the fish and wildlife say this is a recovered population in Colorado? And but you know the when when you look at what's a recovered wolf population in the greater Rocky Mountain region, um, to me that doesn't mean they have to be in every state that they historically we're in if they um, end up there through immigration or migration that that's fine you know you develop a plan for it but it has to have sideboards to it 
You, you can't just let them go willy nilly. But the and but, but then well, I think the Fish and Wildlife Service is obligated to assess the pros and cons of having wolves wherever they're going to end up through the 10J process. But they, but even if, but even if the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service says, we believe that based on all the factors that the original figure of 150 wolves naturally spread out across the habitat of however they want it, that that represents a reasonable population and a, and a population that could be considered recovered. That, that, that constitutes a viable population that's self-sustaining. There you go. Perfect. Viable, self-sustaining population. If the if Colorado disagrees with that, it's not like U.S. Fish and Wildlife can can intervene, injunct Colorado and say, no, 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 you, you need to stop bringing wolves in. The only thing that they could say is, well, then we're just going to revoke the 10J, correct? Yeah, they've got to work with, the state's got to work with them on what their obligations and responsibilities are. Okay. Even so, though it was a state state's uh, uh, initiative that was passed by the citizens of the state, they still have to acknowledge that they're, whether they like or not, there's going to be some federal um, involvement in the process. And, and that involvement is either going to be maintaining the flexibility of the 10J rule or we revoke the 10J and you are forced to, if if wolves are still under, are listed, let's just say five years from now, whatever, um, wolves are still listed, listed for some reason as endangered, you either, Colorado can either play under the, the, the umbrella of the 10J or Fish and Wildlife Service says, okay, you've left the confines of what we think is reasonable. Therefore, we are removed, we're revoking the 10J, and now you're stuck under the ESA. Is that a fair statement? I, well, I can't say 100%, but I, you know, it seems okay. logical that that's the way it would go. All right. Yeah, because I, I don't know. I, I This yeah. this this lose, leaves my expertise. So, yeah, as long as they're, as long as they're still unlisted they are still under the ESA here's my problem with that that completely plays into the wolf advocates agenda that that's what the wolf advocates would love to have so this is where i am the debbie downer in this discussion for sportsmen i want to see the 10j and i would like to see some good sidebar sideboards to this plan. I would like to see whether we talk about recreational hunting in the future or not. I would like to see at least some level of ability for lethal control of wolves in the future as needed. Those are three things I would like to see. But right now the governor and the wildlife commission and this plan are all that that's not even though those are not on the table. And so if we're arguing for the 10J rule to say we want a reasonable 10J determination and we want these things, even if 
U.S. Fish and Wildlife get great. They let's just say on an out chance, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agrees with us. The activists, it's in the, it's not even, it's literally in the best interest of wolf activists to not have the 10J. So who gives a rip whether or not the state violates it and whether or not we still get to operate under the 10J rule? Does that make sense? Like the, the, this, the activists have the power here as far as I'm concerned. I'm not, it seems like the Fish and Wildlife Service either under the 10J rule or the ESA have to have some kind of governance over the process. I don't know. Because, see, in, in Idaho, prior to the time they were delisted, everything went through the Fish and Wildlife Service. But isn't that because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services are the ones that initiated the action? Right. In this case, we have... But it's still... In Colorado, uh, for me, it's, it's kind of mute as to who initiates the action. The wolf is still an endangered species outside of certain parameters or uh, distribution and if they are an endangered species period until they're delisted so but if okay so but it, let, let's 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 play this both let's play this both ways then and the reason why i want to go through this mental exercise is because there's i've been hounding a bunch of people like listen to this stuff and, and start getting engaged with whether it's the 10J determination, whether you're talking to your legislature, whether you're talking to newspapers, or you're talking to news stations. Like we need to have a better understanding of what's going on and actually have a better message. So having these type of discussions helps people process some of these difficult things that they haven't even considered before. Um, and that unfortunately no one else is talking about for some stupid reason. What has the Fish and Wildlife Service's involvement been to date? Sit zero other than receiving the application for the 10J rule and considering it. That's it. And so that's my question is if the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is just going to sit back and be like, hey, if you guys want to do this, we'll, you know, we'll look at these. We'll make it because it was a it was a request for an expedited, you know, 10J determination. It's, you know truncated a bunch of the EI, the EIS type stuff it's and and US Fish and Wildlife has has said essentially that they're on board with granting the 10J but just because of the regular process it's going to be difficult to get that 10J before you know any any earlier than mid December that's literally the only pushback that, that that U.S. Fish and Wildlife has given like everybody wants it even the forest service when they had the the meeting the forest service uh, folks that that showed up to the meeting. Now, not everybody in the Forest Service feels the same way, but the people, the 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 folks that were there from the Forest Service seemed to paraphrase a buddy of mine that was watching. They almost seemed giddy about it. They were glad. They're like, they're they were excited about the prospect of of having wolves in Colorado. So it's like, and this is what meant my argument to the sportsman. No one's coming to save you. Like the the feds have not indicated that there's any issue with this the forest service has not indicated any issue with this the state is the one that's running it like no who do you have like at least idaho the feds were putting were putting something into a state and the state had at least 
10th Amendment, you, you, at least the state was like, hold the phone. You know, you're impacting us. We're So the state had the force of the state pushing back against the federal government. In this case, we have like no one pushing back on it. When the wolves were introduced to Idaho, the legislators, you know, passed legislation that prevented fishing game from being involved in any aspect of research or management. And, you know, the the initial efforts were trying to keep a radio collared in each pack and monitoring pack size and uh, litter production and that kind of thing. And over time, they said, hey, you know, we don't have the manpower to do this. So somebody's going to have to step up. Well, it couldn't be fish and game. So that's when the Nez Perce tribe stepped up. And even though the tribe was doing the monitoring on populations and movements and distribution, they were still under the umbrella of the Fish and Wildlife Service. Yeah, see, I don't. I just don't know how. I'm just not, you know, the, the old adage, the, the sword of Damocles, you know what I mean? Like that, that thing of, you know, that, that, you know, the force, what, what's the force of effect? Like, so where is there any sort of force of effect to keep? And, and I don't want to like, listen, I don't, I don't, I, I would rather wolves not show up in Colorado, period. But that's, a, that's a mute. That, that, right. Right. At this point, yeah, that, they're that's there. Issue. Okay, they're there. And they're going to be there. Okay, so at that point, at this point, all I care about, okay, can we have a reasonable, measured, common sense approach to the reintroduction? My experience with animal activists, when you give them public policy control, no, you won't. It, they, they will, they will, they will, it, like you said in the previous one, they want to treat this like Yellowstone and, and everybody sing, you know, sit back in Kumbaya. And if, if you're a hunter that's negatively affected, oh, well, you don't need to be there anyway. If you're a livestock producer, oh, well, you're evil. You're contributing to global warming anyway. So get out. If you're a, a mountain biker or a hiker or a skier or whatever, and you're negatively impacted, well, that doesn't matter. Climate change, delicate nature, you need to be exclude. You, you need to be removed off the landscape because wolves need to be out here in pristine park-like conditions. Well, Colorado is not that playground, but that's how they want to treat this. So, how do you keep that ideology within? It's like a runaway horse. You can have a bit in the mouth, but if you don't have some good reins to just pull back and slow the horse down, it's going to run away from you. I don't see, this is my problem right now, is I'm not seeing any mechanism by which to slow down this runaway horse, even through the 10J. I hope I'm wrong. I don't know. That's why I'm trying to wrap Well, I think up. your 10J is your best option to try to have some control over it. But given the fact uh, of your state leadership it doesn't sound like uh it's it's going to be real difficult to gain power and change through state leadership or what you're looking for or what the sportsman should be fighting for right right you know rumor has so it. you're gonna again um it's gonna take uh, a, a mobilization of you know varying sportsman's groups to try to derail it somehow, or at least get some um, consideration for their point of view into it. 
Yeah. That, I mean, and that's the thing is, I, but again, you know, like we talked, the apathy of sportsmen is, you know, that I mentioned that a, a fellow called me the other day after hearing the first podcast. And I asked him if he belonged to any sportsman's groups, and he said, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it, so it's, uh, you know, if people listening are concerned and want to be involved, the best way is to select uh, a sporting group that uh, supports your values and uh, is willing to, you know, work on resolving this issue. Well, and, and more, even more important, and I just had this conversation last night, you can give your money to organizations all you want. And then some of these organizations have literally just stepped back and, and they're not doing anything. So if, you, if you're going to spend money, and this, this was the case that I made to, to Justin and, and John last night, is there's a lot of people that would like to push money, you know, help pay, you know, contribute, if you will. They're out of state. They, you know, they can't go sit in, in the Colorado Capitol or whatever, but they would like to contribute. Well, you got to make sure that your money is being spent wisely. If I'm going to send you money, like, what are you going to, like, do you have a plan? Like, are you going to be there? Do you have a plan? Do you have a message? Do you have a strategy? Like, like what, like, what the hell are we doing here? You know? And so there, even though there's a coalition of these 18 different groups that are coming together to have this conversation, I pushed back last night and said, one of them is the Colorado Wildlife Federation. And I've and, and I know ideologically they're more in line with the National Wildlife Federation, and so they they usually are on the environmental left leaning side of the political spectrum. And I said, case in point, you can go to their website right now. On the on their issues, they had three three different political action items. One dealt with watersheds and pollinator species and plant communities, that type of stuff. You know that was supposed to be put a, a bill before the state legislature, and it did. It said, here's the bill. Here's what it does. Colorado Wildlife Federation supports this bill because of these things. So blah, blah, blah. The next item was Senate Bill 256. Senate Bill 256 says this. Here's what this says. Here's what it does. Here's all the work that's been going on with this issue. And here's all the the meetings that have been happening. And here's all the the blah, 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 blah. If you'd like to learn more about this, click this link for, you know, to, to, to read the bill. And then here's the third item, the third bill, because there's there was three different bills put together as a suite. There was a, a license plate bill where you can buy a license plate and put money in towards the wolf reintroduction. The Senate Bill 256, the one that says you need the 10J and you need to have the e, the full EIS. And then the third one was to basically legislatively make sure they fund the wolf compensation the livestock compensation plan. So there's three different bills there. So on the CWF's page, they had the first bill, clearly said they support. Senate Bill 256, they just gave information about it. And here's a link to the language. And then the third bill, the livestock compensation one, it said, here's the here's this bill. Here's what it says. Colorado Wildlife Federation supports this bill because of blah, 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 this, that. And I, 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 I did. I raised my head. I'm like, so... Why doesn't Colorado Wildlife Federation support the 10J? They're supposedly a sportsman's organization. They're supposedly be a part of a constructive part of this 18 group sportsman group coalition that's all moving together. But here they are, they're not supporting the bill. Like, so how can how can we have people wanting to send money to something 
if our sportsmen's organizations aren't even supporting common sense wolf reintroductions, number one, and who cares about whether or not they, what they care about, they're not coalesced around a common cause. But the animal activists are always, they, and this was the, the point I made last night, animal activists will rally behind a unified message and then they will squabble behind the scenes for their own little details. But when they move forward, they're on a unified front and they move the needle. Sportsmen, we never get on a unified front until we've hashed out all of our details and we never hash them out. So we never get a unified front and we never move the needle. And it's like, there's people that want to spend money on this or want to get involved. And hence my, my question to you is like, how do we get people how, like, okay, we got people that want to get involved. Fine. Then how do we do it? Like given the parameters of what we know the human nature to be within the consumptive use mindset, how do we constructively engage? You know, it seems to me like you've got a, to key in on the true hunting organization, like your Colorado War Hunters and uh, muzzleloaders, and uh, I, I don't know if there's any centerfire groups out there. Well, Dan, but, uh, one of the one of the ones that shows promise is Dan Gates. Dan Gates is a great guy. I, I I've got a lot of respect for Dan. He's got the Colorado for Coloradans for Responsible Wildlife Management. I think is the is the name of the group, and and that's that's got legs to it. I mean, he. he he How is he generating support? Very weakly. That's and that's the thing. I I I'm like, okay, we we've got to start to coalesce around an organization or an individual or a cause. And so, if if what's Dan, his name in his group? Dan Gates, Coloradans for Responsible Wildlife Management, I believe is what it is. CRM, yes. CRWM is that what it is? I've got my phone. I got my phone. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Dan Gates' group. Dan's a good guy. Dan actually was he was part of the SAG group, the the stakeholder advisor group for the plan. And I think that's part of the reason why Dan's group does not have the momentum going into this because by default, process oriented, he is in the pipeline as a part of the formal process. So he can't be outside of the formal process fighting against it or 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 muddying the water. So he's had to stay quiet while the 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 SAG group was meeting and the and the process the, the sausage making was happening. Well now that the sausage making is done and now that the product is put forward, now he's outside of it again and now he can start to do things. And so consensus driven type process. Oh wait wait which what which part which part the the, the one that he was on yeah that was SAG. that was the that was the wolf management and, and you know, the, the plan. Um, he was part of the stakeholder advisor group for putting together the plan. Now that the plan is being finalized and approved, he's, his job is done. So, so he, his handcuffs are off now. I heard to some, some of my bowhunting friends in Colorado that there was a guy named Denny Ben or Blen that was involved initially. Probably you Denny, I mean? probably Denny Barron's. Barron, that was it. Yeah, he's well, a very yeah, yep, he's a traditional uh archery uh guy, very uh he's yeah, good bow hunter. Like, yeah, yep, yep, I know Denny very very well. Yep. So how was he 
generating some interest in it. You nope. have it. They just said, because I asked something about why isn't anybody in Colorado trying to fight this earlier? And they mentioned him and he apparently gave up just out of frustration. Uh, and I don't know the details. I'm going to only share what I've heard secondhand. I believe him or people around him coalesced around a, they, they coalesced around this group call or base. They called themselves, uh, what was it? Uh, stop the wolf coalition. And it was a very, very, I'll just say it, a very hard line, right leaning. I, I won't say militants, but I mean, like very aggressive anti-wolf stance. And apparently some of them were emailing lot, uh, senators directly or whatever. And the state secretary or the state uh, attorney general or secretary attorney general for the state basically went straight at him. Yep. Went at him and said, you guys shut down because you're acting as a lobbyist and, and you're not a registered lobbyist. So you're done. So basically this is the problem. And, and this is, this is across the board. The governor and his appointees have absolutely been militant against any dissension. Like you rear your ugly head and we'll come and cut it off. And like, it's across the board, across the agencies, across personnel, it, he, so, I'm, I, I don't live in Colorado, so I will express my personal opinion. He's running around like a petty tyrant. He's term limited. The composition of your Senate and your uh, Congress or your representatives. So, are, is there then, any, are, is the majority there supporting the way it's going? Senate has more hope to kind of stand up maybe and i'm talking we're talking about hairline breadth of whether or not they're willing to, to go against the governor apparently the house of representatives that's going to be a hard sell house of representatives is is very friendly to the governor so again this is where we go back to there there's almost no checks and balances here he's term limited his husband is a very prominent animal activist and this is their mandate so, yeah, great, <laughs> great, yay! <laughs> kind of All right, to, to do this after the fact, you know. Obviously, the big push should have come on the initiative. <laughs> well, yeah, well, and yeah. this, and, and so this now was, you're trying to mold something out of something you have very little chance of doing. Unfortunately, you want to you want to remold your clay pot after you put it through the kiln. It, you can't do that. You you have to smash the whole thing to bits and start over. And that's my argument to the sportsman. I'm like, guys, at this point, there's enough that has been documented through these past two years of the governor's actions, the wildlife commissioner's actions, how it's been structured, what's been going on, and the fact that the fiscal note has not been fully vetted before the, the public. I think you could make a case to do another ballot initiative and put it before the Colorado voters and say, do you still want to go through with this? Or do we want to at least put some sideboards on it? Then the governor's out of it. You know what I mean? If if it, if you get the signatures, I'm sorry, it goes on the ballot. And then you can make the case. But here's here we go. You need money. And more importantly, you need cohesive unity within the groups that are going to push that forward. We don't have it. 
have power to collect the signatures. <laughs> so yep. I I don't know. I, I don't want to. I just it sucks being the, the doom and gloom guy. But I, I, I maybe I mentioned it before. But, you know, again, all I've all I've been hearing uh, with the sportsman community stuff is all of the same type, type of stuff, this, this echo chamber. And I told him, I said, if everyone in the room is in agreement, then someone is not thinking. So if, if I've got to be the guy, if, if I'm the guy that just goes, okay, then I'm going to pick the contrarian view. I'm going to, I'm going to, I will take the devil's advocate position and put into the discussion, a different perspective. Then, then that's what I'm going to do at least for a while. It's nothing else to get you to think. Well, I'm a devil's advocate. You know, I, I uh, didn't get an opportunity last time for some reason, but uh, I think I mentioned that, you know, I, I write the species profile for the Pope and Young Club's quarterly magazine. And one issue last year was on the Shirus moose. And in getting background information on that, I contacted, you know, all of the states that have a Shirus moose hunt and, and populations. But in Wyoming, it was really sad. Uh, let me read you here. In uh, the statewide population estimate in 89 to 91 was 1250 to 13,000 animals. And they had uh, 36 hunting areas with, and 15 herds. Okay. In uh, 2015, the statewide estimated population was 3,470. Wow. And uh, in the uh, Jackson Hole area, they went from 315 licenses in 94 to 10 licenses in 18. <laughs> yeah, well, and like we talked about and before, you, like, like your, we talked about. Uh, your moose population is to be marveled, and it's going to be gone. Done. Yeah, and and to to the activist again, we go back to the animal activists, and I, I've watched it with with my side. They'll they'll watch the animal activists will watch moose come, or excuse me, watch wolves go into these moose populations and wipe them out, and they will literally sit there deadpan, look you square in the eye, and say, "Well, that's nature's way." And 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 they they believe it. They truly believe it that if if the entire system falls down around its ears, well, that's nature's way. Anything else other than that was artificial and wrong. And so whatever the wolves do, they're going to put balance back to the ecosystem and it will be fixed once the wolves are back. And it, I, I don't know. Can I ask I you? I don't think there, it would be a rare place on the entire planet to find an area that hasn't had some human influence. Well, I, and I get, and again, I, I that's, you know, they're, they're, I guess their conquest for a letting nature and natural ecosystems happen are there. That's storybook stuff. It's just they're 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 searching. They're they are searching for their utopia, their their idea of utopia. And literally, I've made the parallel. I said this is lit. It's it's you're you're dealing with a parallel idea that you know. Well, socialism is a great idea. The only reason why it, it failed in the past was because they didn't do it right. I'll do it right. We'll we'll do it right this time. It's like you're you're completely discounting all 
evolutionary behavioral, whether we're talking from humans all the way down, you're, you're removing evolutionary behavior off the landscape. Doesn't matter. This time it'll work because we will make it so. And it, the, unfortunately, the state of Colorado is going to have to go through some really, really hard times before they wake up and pull themselves out of it. But is it does it get to the point at that point where there is no at some point you you don't have room to pull up anymore? Well, that's like we are in the Clearwater, unless something significant happens to the habitat as well as the wolf numbers. It's never, you know, it's, when I was working, we, we did our major elk units, uh, surveyed them every three years. And now there are five-year intervals. And some of the areas like the wilderness units, uh, there's uh, four units in the Selway zone. They haven't flown them since 2007. So they have no idea what the elk numbers are doing back there. But um, I can tell you that in these units that, the wolves are an issue and without a major department sponsored effort to reduce them, each count is incrementally going down. Right. Except on these outside units where there's access to agricultural land and the wolves uh, know that, you know, they get shot at every time they come out of the brush there. Yeah. And see, it, it, you just, okay. So you just nailed something right there. So part of what Colorado, what the, the animal activists in Colorado are trying to do is to make sure that the landowners don't even have that ability that they, 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 you know, you you can haze them or you can, you know, do the flattery stuff. You can do the blah, 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 but you, but you can't shoot at them. You, you can't, you know, you can't kill one. Hell no. So you gotta hire a trail rider and monitor them. Yeah. All that crap that on them <laughs> to prevent it. <laughs> right. So, so does the, does the livestock industry, between the cattle and the sheepmen, don't they have enough political clout to do some positive things here? They they used to, but you've got a governor and an agency that are just flat out ignoring them. They have a lobbyist and, and they're working hard and, and they're doing it. They're making a very solid play for themselves and they're standing up, I think, for themselves as best they can within the framework of what they can. Um but that's the problem when you when you have the governor who doesn't care, you've got the le- state legislature who eh, not so much really, and then a wildlife commission that doesn't care, and an agency that's been sh- hand you know shackled. Another ingredient that you need to consider too is the uneducated masses, and which are on the west east slope. <laughs> yeah, you know, in '96. There was a citizens' initiative in Oregon and Washington both to prevent trailing dogs to hunt lions and bear, as well as baiting bear. And and I did a an article on the Oregon situation because that's where I grew up. But it only passed in like six or seven of the 30-some counties. But it was that Willamette Valley corridor, or the I-5 corridor is what we call it because it goes through Western Washington, and the same things happen at you guys, you know, and somehow on statewide issues, there's got to be some kind of regional representations where a portion of the state, just due to its population size, dictates to the whole rest of the state. There's uh, been two or three counties in Oregon now 
that have actually at the county level have signed a past legislation to create what they call uh, uh, something it's something bigger Idaho and they're wanting those counties in some of the counties in west eastern Oregon as well as eastern Washington want to be incorporated into Idaho right. because of our values are more of the same right but you see that you see that across the board in a lot of greater states. Idaho is what it's called there you go greater Idaho yeah, but you see that in New York. I mean, how, even Kansas. Kansas is that way. We're run by Kansas City, Topeka, and um, uh, Wichita. I mean, literally, uh, it, the rest of it. You can watch how elections happen, where the entire state, you know, go you know, red versus blue. The entire state is red, and then you get this little blue dot, blue dot, blue dot. And guess what? There's enough people in those little blue dots to steamroll over everybody else, and it just it sucks. I got one last question. I, yeah, yeah, I got one. I got one question for you. You brought up in the last uh, the last discussion. I, I'm very very interested. You you brought up the article: Is science in danger of sanctifying the wolf? Talk to me a, bit, a little bit about that. Well, you know, for years and years, uh, Dave Meech has been the wolf guru in the United in North America. He started studying wolves right out of college back in the probably the fifties and has been, I mean, when you look at his name in the literature on wolves, it's the most significant and he's getting into, he's into his eighties now. And what he's seeing is what he calls this sanctification of wolves through all of the quote good deeds they do. And it's all based on, or the majority of it's based on what's happened in Yellowstone and this, quote, uh, trophic cascading. And, you know, like we mentioned last time, the park recognized the elk were beyond the habitat capacity back in the 60s. And they, as a group, the park rangers, actually reduced the population by just shy of 5,000. And that the 5,000 is what the population estimate was that the habitat would support. But the public outcry of the park killing the elk prevented any further uh, checks on the population. And then you had the fire in the park, which really created more habitat. And the population all of a sudden were up into the 16, 18,000. And they were eating themselves out of house and home. And and uh, so that's, you know, um, it's not fair to say that the wolves reducing the, the elk numbers caused all these wonderful things to happen. It was more of a mismanagement of the elk population to start with. And that cast, you know, the, the benefits they're seeing of the willows and the beaver coming back and stuff had the elk numbers been kept at the capacity of the habitat alone those never would have happened that those issues would never have been an issue right dave's just concerned but uh, just to read what he says here any such cascading effects of wolves found in national parks would have little relevance to most of wolf range because of overriding anthropophoric influences of wolves, prey vegetation, and other parts of the food web. The wolf is neither a saint nor a sinner, except to those who want to make him so. And that's 
but your 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 environmentalists want to make the wolf a saint. It's right. going to solve all the problems, and it's right. not it's not apples to apples. It's it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and and this is where I I've been stressing, and and I'm going to try to do my part. Um, I'll obviously I'll reach out to you probably privately, and we'll have some other discussions maybe publicly as well. But um, one of the things that sportsmen have just been hammer you know screaming about is you know we need to stand on the science. We need to stand on the science. We need to stand on the science. Whose science? Because the problem now is there's enough people involved with wildlife biology, wildlife research, conservation biology type stuff, ecology type stuff that and and we can sit we can we can we can make this qualification on both sides of the ideological spectrum. But the reality is there are a lot of people involved with quote unquote science that have a pre, they, they have a value set that is predetermined. I do too. Like I, I have a I have a very predetermined consumptive use value set. And I know for a fact that I view things with that 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 set of that lens, so to speak. But there are other people that are engaged. They are legitimate researchers. They're legitimate scientists doing we can say legitimate re- research, but they're looking at things from their own viewpoint in their own lens. And they're bringing their, their quote unquote, their science to the table. You know, people were, you know, talking about the fact that, you know, we're not listening to the scientists, you know, the, the wildlife commission isn't listening to the scientists, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hold on a minute. Gary Skiba is one of the leads on the active, on the advocacy side for having wolves. Gary Skiba was a very, very accomplished and very uh, respected uh, researcher within the Colorado Division of Wildlife back in the day. I don't know how many years he spent with the agency. Well over 20, I believe, as he was a bird researcher. The the guy's got credentials eight ways from Sunday as far as being a legitimate biological wildlife researcher. Yeah. He's just on the pro-wolf side. So you, you can't say we're not listening to the, the biologists. Yes, we are. <laughs> He's right there. Like you just don't like what that biologist is saying. The issue is those are the only type of biologists that are being allowed to speak in a public forum. We don't have the other, the quote unquote other side of the, the equation. We don't have the Dave Meaches going to a, a, a commission meeting and sitting there going, Guys, I I heard this, I heard that, I heard this. I just want to correct the record. No, that's not the case here because this, this, and this, and that study there was not because you know there's no other there's no researcher that's coming to the table, whether they're on a neutral standpoint or whether they're from the the consumptive use value set standpoint no other researchers uh, and no other science is being interjected into the public space and it's just frustrating because i i've got professor buddy you know our f- former professors and i'm looking at, at you know former biologists and 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 um state managers and biologists like i'm like where are you guys i know you retired i know you just you, you've you've done your time god we could use you right now we could use you right now you know Anyway, in fact, uh, on early on on the wolf issue, there was a a letter of support, and it was signed by a hundred scientists 
So I took the time to print out that thing. And they were all over the board. They were engineers. They were chemists that, you know, very, I mean, you couldn't even pick a handful that were, you know, wild, you know, science. Uh, Wildlife. Yeah. yeah. It was all, but they were all PhDs. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so, it, so yeah. it sounded awesome. So it sounded great. But you look at what their background is. It has nothing to do with wildlife. Right. Right. Well, Mike, I appreciate it. I, I don't need to keep you for three or whatever hours we did last time. <laughs> well, if, you know, when you ruminate on what we've discussed, if there's some specific information that I could work up for you, let me know. Right. And I'll I'll um, dig into the um, male versus female harvest over time and let you know, you know, how that has transpired but again the only way that the department is showing great elk hunter harvest is through the harvest of cows and is related to depredation gotcha no i it, if and by the same token whether you do want to do it now or later or whatever i mean if there's anything that you know because obviously you lived this i mean you you've walked this walk if there's anything else that we need to be keeping an eye you know like like if there's things that we need to do that we haven't discussed as of yet, by all means, let me know. I, I one of the saddest issues, as and you referred to it earlier, is the uh, personal agendas that people have. And you know, I I would like to see the department come in and and whack and stack wolves in the Clearwater region to let the elk numbers come back and then let things go again, but. It's like Isle Royal, you know, if if without controlling the wolf numbers, your race BC is going to drop until the predator species drop. And it's going to allow. So it's just going to be like this. And, um, you know, I I don't hate wolves. I, I think it's neat to hear them howl and it's neat to see them, but they need to be managed by number and distribution. They can't just run them up everywhere <laughs> right and, and and it would be nice to have people involved in the wolf world as well as the lungulate world come together and just say hey you know we know that they eat wolf or moose and elk and deer and stuff but they cannot be the dominant critter on the landscape they yeah. have to you know, it's, we're no longer a society that can allow that, I think. And again, that's my personal opinion, obviously. Right. No, I, I well, and, and I don't think that we talked about the last time, the bell-shaped curve. You know, the, the, yeah. the vast majority of people in the in the middle of that bell-shaped curve, they're going to, they want, they're going to want a balance. I, I've seen it repeatedly in my career dealing with, with, in, with controversial wildlife species in the urban corridor. They want the most reasonable person in the room. Like they'll, they'll hear that extreme side. They'll hear that extreme side. And then the, the most reasonable person in the room steps up and goes, you've got some validity. You've got some validity. How about we do this? Because this addresses that. Like if you, if someone shows up in the middle of the room, middle of the ideology and can bring both sides together and provide a path forward, the vast majority of people will just latch onto that person and be like, yes, you do that. Yes. We want to do that. 
That's where sportsmen are going to have to be right now. All these people that are all excited about, oh, the 10J or the Senate bill, or, or we can finally we can finally stop this. You, you, they, they can't be talking about dropping poison baits from the air. and Oh, you know, right. And, you know, right. Like in Oregon, there was a, a group that was um, putting attractants in sponges, you know, and then the wolf would eat the sponge and it would plug up the digestive tract and I mean that we don't need that kind of crap. That just feeds into the the hands of the advocates, or, you know, or right. pro proponents. And you can't talk about SS and S and you know all that stuff. It's we realize they're here. They're going to be here. We need to just figure out how they fit into everything, rather than they aren't going to be in control of everything. Right. At this point, like I said, the, the train's left the station. We, we've, we, the clay yeah. pot has been fired. What we need to worry about is, is can we, can we put some reasonable sideboards on this? And at this point, we'll see what ends up happening with that, with the, the bill, the, the yeah. Colorado bill 256. Yeah. Uh, I'm still skeptical. It to be a, you know, it, it seems like that's your best bet right now. <laughs> Yeah, and and this is where I had my mind changed last night. I'll own it. You know, that's the thing is, I, you know, I've I've repeatedly said, I hope I'm wrong on some of these things, and if someone proves me wrong, I'll I'll eat my words and love it. Um, and that's what I told him last night. As I didn't think this this bill had a shot in hell of passing. Number one, number two, the the governor's going to just veto it anyway. So why are we even why are we even poking these people in the eye with this stuff? The rebuttal was well. At some point, the people of Colorado, the general public, needs to hear some of these things. At some point, the the decision makers of the state, outside of the Wildlife Commission, need to be privy to some of these arguments, and they need to have their say, and they need to be involved. In, in, and the only way to do that is to take this bill before the Senate and argue it on the floor and have that discussion. And I was like, "You're absolutely right. You're you're ap- you're regardless of the outcome." It yes, you're absolutely right. And Let's fast forward right now. Yeah, and so to the point of me changing my mind, I'm saying, okay, now, yeah, not only do we need to get a hold of our, you know, the representatives and senators. No, you need cheeks and seats. Like we need to organize buses and vans or whatever. We're we're going to meet. You know, the meeting is on such and such a day. The hearing is at such and such a time. We're going to meet here. We're going to load into a bus. We're going to bus you down to the Capitol, dump you off so you don't have to pay for camp. You don't have to drive. You don't have to pay for parking. We're going to make it easy. We'll get everybody there. You like make a showing in front of the state legislative body that we are here and we want to be heard and we want you to hear all the crap that's going on and make a decision up. You know, I think if we can get a bunch of people in there, a couple hundred people in there, Maybe you could make it to where if if this passes out of the chambers, it passes with enough votes where it almost seems like a mandate where it becomes difficult for the governor to veto it without looking like a petty tyrant. You know what I mean? Like he it, I thought he, it passed five to two in the resource and then it went to appropriations. Now what if it passes with a, a large margin there, where does it go? It's supposed to go. It's supposed to be argued before the floor uh, next week. Uh, what the eleventh? So, 
Yeah, it's. I think it's a slim margin, but I think it is important. And this is where I will change my mind. And I agree. I think it's important for, for sportsmen to show up. Don't, don't go clickety click on a, on a keyboard with an email. I don't even, don't even waste your time with a a phone call because I think it's going to be important for a physical presence. Like I'm standing before you, you need to, you need to hear me. And And I even told him, I said, Justin, I would literally be trying to connect individuals like Oh, you live in Fort Collins. Okay, your senator is that person right there. And the next, you know, just go down. Who's your guy? And when you get up on the platform at the podium to testify, I'd be like, I am your constituent. And I would point right at him. I am your constituent. And I'm here today to speak to you because this is what I feel. This is what I believe. This is my culture. This is my, you know, and and articulate to them, like point to them, like put them on the spot where, you're a public official and I am your constituent. I, I am pleading before you for some sort of relief. And this is it. That's going to be hard for them to just go, screw you, get out of here. I don't care. How about your um, national delegation, your senator and congressman? Where are they on this stuff? I, I, I That's a great question. And I do not know how they're, how they're, I mean, obviously they're both Democrat. So you know, I, I don't know how they shape out on that. The rumor has been that Governor Polis is already in private conversations with the head of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So it's like. Have you, have you tried to contact Ed Banks? To He was Fish and Wildlife Service's main lead on the 10J stuff. He's retired now. He may want to weigh in on some of this with you. I don't know. I would love to talk to him. Maybe yeah, when Ed we're Banks. done. Yeah, if if, if Ed if, Banks Fish and Wildlife Service, B Banks. It's uh, let's see, B A N K S Banks. Okay. Yeah, I would. Uh, I would love to to chat with him. Maybe when we. I'll when see we, if I can find some contact info for you on him. Awesome, awesome. Because I, 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 at this point, I am all in on grabbing any of you seasoned veterans of this issue to to just because there this is the thing let me let me put it this way and we can wrap it up um and, and my audience knows this story so my mom I, i've got a lot of cancer in my family history and my mom recently passed away from cancer and i'm watching and I, and my best friend also passed away a number of years ago from cancer and i'm i'm watching the two families navigate this horrible disease. And one of the things that just hit me so hard was it's almost like every person, every family that goes through that hardship is learning things fresh and new for themselves that someone else already learned. Like you're walking the same path, but no one shares the information. You don't even know what you don't know. Like you're, you're just, you're, you're, you're wading into this treacherous pool of hell Someone else has already been there. Can I talk to them and and just navigate what's coming ahead? And so now with my land, one of the landowners that I that I work with here, his wife is unfortunately going through exactly what my mom went through. And so we've had some informal conversations where I'm like, okay, you're telling me she's on this medication. You're telling me that she had okay. Here's this. Here's what's going to happen. Here's like, like, just here's a heads up, man. I, I hope she's going to be all right. I want her the best. I pray for her, but just 
have uh, something on the horizon to go okay are these you know you know points on the uh, uh, progression so anybody like you and and ed or or dave or anybody else you guys have walked this path you, you've guys been in the trenches we don't even know what we don't know we don't know what bombshells are going to come over the freaking like it would be good to talk to you if nothing else just so we can have a heads up because maybe sometime in the future something you or someone else says sparks an idea and you're like hold on a minute that's what they did but here we can like having that little piece of information might give us the tools to pivot and uh, adjust or react in a way that keeps us out of some problems that we might not have ever known that we were about to trip into so i'm all for talking to to anybody that you think i should talk to so no i appreciate that uh, I've got an Oregon contact, uh, and he's in New Zealand hunting right now. Nice. <laughs> so when he gets back from New Zealand, I'll uh, have him get in touch with you. Awesome. Awesome. Mike, I appreciate your time again tonight. I'm looking yep. at my clock, and I, and I know I've got hungry horses on the other end. So uh, how about I won't keep you any longer. I appreciate it. Um, we'll Let's just keep our lines of communication open for now. We'll, we'll, yep. we'll have some behind well, anytime. And then uh, I'll I'll just try to keep you in the loop on what's going on on our on the Colorado end and uh, yeah I, I again seriously sir I appreciate your time and, and all your expertise and wisdom I know that everybody that's I've heard from has really enjoyed this so I I, I know it's going to be the exact same for this one I'm going to try to probably release this discussion of uh, late Sunday night so it's available for everybody Monday morning Super. awesome thank you sir appreciate your time have a great night. Bet. Same to you. All right. Bye.